But I don't just see it as like family related. I think we could talk about our chosen family or the family of human beings because I think it's each generation's responsibility to spell a story that's good for the community and good for the animals and the plants. I think it's all of our responsibility. Yeah. And so if what I'm doing uh, makes that happen in some way, then I, I, I feel good about that. This is This Choice, a podcast that asks writers how their work with poetry influences the choices they make in their daily lives. Does poetry help them live the good life? This is Ren Powell, and thank you for joining me. This time, I'm talking to Janetta Calhoun-Mish. Janetta is currently the Oklahoma State Poet Laureate. Her most recent books are What I Learned at the War, a poetry collection published by West End Press in 2016, and Oklahomaland, a collection of essays, published by Lumar University Press 2015. Her 2009 poetry collection, titled Work is Love Made Visible, was published by West End Press and won an Oklahoma Book Award, a Wrangler Award, and the Willa Award from Women Writing the West. Mish has published poetry in This Land, Nagatuck River Review, Concho River Review, Labor, Studies in Working Class History of the Americas, World Literature Today, and many other journals. I'd been looking forward to this conversation with Janetta for a very long time. I hope you enjoy it, and jumping right into the conversation. We'll get started and um, see where it leads us. So yeah. I always start with asking when and why you started writing poetry. I have a very specific story about that. I wrote my first poem when I was in second grade. And I wrote that poem because uh, I heard a commotion outside my bedroom window one weekend and stood up on the bed to look out the window. It was one of those older saw houses where the windows were high. And a pack of feral dogs um, were killed my dog, and I saw him do it in the backyard. And so that was my first poem was about the death of my dog. Um, the reason I knew that was a poem was because my mother had read to me. Well, she started reading to me before I was born, um, but she loved poetry. And when she read to me, she pointed out genre. She said, well, this is a story. You know what stories are. This is a poem. And, you know, this is a woman who didn't graduate high school. But um, uh, she, loved, she loved to read. My grandmother loved to read. They both loved poetry. So the reason I knew that that was a subject suitable for a poem was because uh, my mother had been reading poems to me. Wow. So. Do you remember who she read to you at that point? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I do. Um, she read, uh, I actually have an essay that talks about some of this in the uh, Emily Dickinson International Newsletter. Um, she read, she, she loved Dickinson, she, which was unusual for a woman in the 1950s. Um, Byron, she was a romanticist, capital R. And, but she was also, um, she, what did they call it? Was that part of speech declamation, right? She did dramatic interpretation where you would stand up and, you know, declaim a poem yeah. um, from, 
from memory and as a competition. And so she won some medals in that. And not too long ago, I, uh, I found in the things that I had um, inherited after her death, I found her typewritten um, poems that she used um, for declamation, you know, her list, her specific sets of poems that she did. And so, yes, I have a very good idea of what she read and was very much what she read to me. She also loved Frost. I actually own her um, selected poems of Robert Frost in the like, 1940s Penguin edition. So. Wow. What <laughs> a gift to have that as a child. Did yeah, she wrote poetry, too. I have her poetry that she kept hidden in boxes under the bed. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. Did you read it before she passed away? or I had read one or two before she passed away, but I knew they existed. But that was her private, that was her private thing. That was um, where she could live in the world that she wished she was living in. Right. And so she was very, wasn't she was ashamed of writing poetry. It's not a thing about shame. It was like that was her one place where her heart was safe. And so she didn't really share it with people. Then and she continued you- writing her whole life. So. She'd written her whole life? Yeah. There's not a ton of them, you know. She had um, an often difficult life, so there's long gaps in between. But when she was uh, struggling with things, there would be a poem. Um, My great-great-grandmother was also a poet. She uh, had poems published in the Christian Science Monitor in the 30s. So uh, she was a poet, but she was also a cook. You know, none of, uh, I'm the first woman in my direct family line to graduate high school, much less go to college. So, so it, but it was, poetry wasn't separate from life during those periods. Everybody was expected to be able to read and, and maybe write a poem at some time in their life. It wasn't unusual. I don't um, know exactly when that grand separation started to happen. I have some ideas about it, but uh, I don't want to go into that right now. Uh, <laughs> But certainly it became separated, you know, mm. somehow. So, but yes, um, so when I turned out to be a poet, it wasn't anything that scared my family. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> a working class family, usually people who uh, are writers or artists, you know, that's kind of like, oh, really? Why don't you get a real job? And I didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. It's lucky. <laughs> oh. When you read the poems that your mother left, do you feel that you saw sides of her you didn't know? Were there things um, that were revealed? Oh, yes. So I knew in some ways that my mother was the capital R romantic, even in, in her own interior life. Mm. And that my explanation for part of the way she was, was that she probably always thought she should have been born into it, you know, upper middle class blue blood family. She was, <laughs> everyone, the first word everyone uses to describe my mother is classy. And then when I got those poems, I could see that I wasn't too far off. Mm. Um, and um, I think she felt like maybe she was a changeling and she'd just shown up in the wrong place somehow. Um, she certainly had really good taste, you know, taste in that capital T kind of way. And, like I said, she was very, she was always described as classy. Um, although one time she said to me when I was in high school, she says, I wish people would stop calling me that. 
And I go, why, Mom? Classy is such a great compliment. And she said, because it's cold and lonely up here on this pedestal. So, <laughs> yeah, which I think is a poem itself. So, yeah. Mm, I miss her a lot. <laughs> How long ago did you lose her? 2009. My mother had ovarian cancer, and then my grandmother died six weeks after my mother did. Oh. Couldn't go on anymore without her, her daughter, her caretaker, her best friend. So it was a rough year. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of poems I'm sure you noticed about my mother mm-hmm. in my new book. I still haven't written the one I think I really need to write, and I don't even know what it looks like. I just know that there's more to come before I get where I want to be with the topic of my mother. But writing the essay for the Emily Dickinson uh, newsletter was um, was really great because I could talk about how I came to poetry in a way that most people would overlook or not believe could happen, right? In a working-class household, most people didn't have high school degrees. So that was a nice thing to do. I'll send it to you. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> But you've sort of slid into the other thing I like to talk about is this, the myth of the tortured artist that we have in this culture. But it sounds like with your very first poem, poetry was that for you. It was a therapeutic process. It is. And um, my early life until I was in my mid, well, mid to late 30s um, was really overwhelmed with pain and sorrow and difficulty. Um, and today, um, for many reasons, not the least of which is that I have refused to allow other people's drama into my life, um, the primary pain for me is generated by a chronic disease. I have rheumatoid arthritis. And that pain I just deal with. And for me, it's a lot easier to deal with physical pain than psychological pain. Um, And the question, that question of the capital R, romantic poet in pain, has always been kind of weird for me um, because I lived so many years with pain and I couldn't imagine why someone would want to stay there, why they would want to define themselves as staying there. Um, We all have poets and non-poets alike have pain in our lives of different kinds and Pain for me became very unromantic it, it, mm. um, to live constantly in it, physical, mental, emotional. Um, for so many years, it, it's not romantic anymore, not from my point of view anyway. Yeah. And, you know, does pain make a better poet? I don't think so. But I do think that having varied life experiences helps make a better poet because uh, the poet then has a wider range of topics to write about and has to exercise their empathy more often. Um, Over the years, partly because poets examine our pain in public, like we put it right out there and examine it publicly, the idea of a poet with varied and intense life experiences got reduced to poet in pain. So even though that wasn't all we wrote about, because we did talk about our pain, we do talk about our pain in a way that most other people don't, so publicly, so openly. Um, I think that's where that poet in pain thing came from, uh, because that's one of our topics, but that doesn't mean that's necessarily our entire lives. 
Although I did write through all those periods, too. That's interesting. So you think that maybe the general population is better at expressing joy than pain, so that's what they latch onto when they read? Mm, I don't think it's that they're better at it. I think that they're not, yeah, they're not as good as... Uh, thinking about their own pain, it's hard to think about your own pain when you, you know, got everyday life to do, right? And, um, I mean, you know, poets also have everyday life to do, but we've made that a practice to really deal with what we feel. Um, and so I think that, yes, when, um, when readers come upon this deep discussion of pain in poetry, this representation of pain, that I think they do kind of latch onto that because they're like, oh, yeah, so that's how I feel. I couldn't say that myself. Or, wow, can you believe that she wrote that poem? And um, I don't know if I could have done that for myself. So, yes, not that, not that they're not good at it. I think that our practice of writing around the things that cause us pain and um, difficult things um, just makes us better at it. Not that other people aren't good at it at all. So, so I think that's what happened where the poet in pain, the romantic poet in pain came from was just because, um, because a lot of times people who aren't artists don't have the time or inclination to sit down and examine their pain. When a poet did it, they're like, oh, that's what poets do. They do pain, right? Yeah. Like, did I make myself more clear? No, that makes sense. Yeah. So they were not necessarily surrogates, it's just that we spend more time consciously dealing with it instead of avoiding it? Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, And, you know, to be able to sit down and consciously deal with your pain is kind of, it's a privileged position in some ways. (laughs) It is. (laughs) I remember, (laughs) I remember, um, you you know, uh, from our earlier discussions, I had a long period there of, intense psychological uh, difficulties and when uh when one of my psychiatrists suggested i go to a therapy you know like a real therapist uh psychotherapist i laughed out loud which was a a reaction from my working class life if i'm talking about the ability to talk about our pain as a privilege because everybody just made fun of people the people I knew made fun of all, all those rich people who would lay on a couch five days a week to talk about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> because really, what, what a privilege you, you, that you can go do that. Yeah. So, um, so I actually liked it a lot, but it did at the end help me. But I had to get over actually kind of a, a, a class chip on my shoulder to actually go to therapy. So I think it's also that kind of that kind of thing with poetry. Well, how nice do you have time to sit down and write about everything that hurts? Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, finally, the last thing I'd like to say about that, too, is that, you know, I do think that the poet in pain is a reduction, right? It's reductionist. Mm-hmm. It's a reduction of our art, our practice, and our personal lives. And so one of the reasons I... Um, even though I do write a lot about my pain, I, I don't want to put myself in the place of being that romantic poet in pain because it's a reduction, and I would rather have all the things than reduce what's going on. So. In what I learned at the war, 
Mm -hmm. We have a preface here, which is a quote from Mm -hmm. Karl Marx. Yes. Um, (laughs) It says, people make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition Mm -hmm. of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. (laughs) And... I was wondering, one of the standard questions I ask is whether you are Uh trying to shape a story of your life through your poetry. Um, (laughs) And I think with that preface for this book, it it follows, are you trying to make sense of not only your life, but your mother's and your grandmother's and all of the dead (laughs) on your shoulders? Absolutely. I think that's a really Southern thing, too. Um, like as in, you know, Southern culture of the United States. And a lot of people don't realize that the Southeastern Oklahoma I grew up in was absolutely Southern culture. Um, and, and, and who knew that Marx was a Southerner? (laughs) (laughs) But yes, exactly. So, um, I began the conscious journey of trying to build my life when I was about um, 34 years old. Uh, before then, um, before then, I, I first of all, I don't think I ever really actually believed you could make certain kinds of choices. Um, and then secondly, I made, I made some choices, my mother made some choices that um, precluded really making good choices for myself later. One of them is like, you know, choosing bad relationships. Certainly my mother did. Certainly I did. Um, and um, then I had my first child when I was 30 and it took me another four years to get my stuff together enough to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to live in abuse anymore. I'm not going to um, spend my life energy taking care of um another grown human being <laughs> need to learn to take care of themselves. Um, and um, before then, though, before that period, I just kind of let life batter me around, and uh, both literally and metaphorically. I hopped from one bad relationship to another. I um, would go to college for a little while, well, junior college, and you know, I think I had mm, 12 hours of of four different junior colleges when I finally actually went to university when I was 37 and a single mom. Oh. Um, um, but my story's not unlike a lot of other uh, women from southeastern Oklahoma or from working class communities and poor communities. Um, it's actually very common. We don't feel like we have any control. And to try to have control is actually in some ways more painful because then every day it comes back to you that you don't that all these the hope that you could control something about your life is bashed down all the time by different kinds of emergencies you know economic emergencies emotional emergencies psychological emergencies um and it takes um it it took me almost dying um to um get me on the road to doing to building my own life to actually making decisions um, and so, yes, I extreme, try to be extremely conscious of those decisions now. Being older is great. Being over 50 is great because yeah. they kind of, you know, people kind of expect older women to go, no, uh-uh. <laughs> 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 you 
women can say no and nobody goes, why did she do that? And they go, oh, she's an old woman, um, which is great. Uh, and poetry, I wouldn't have lived through my first 34 years without poetry um, to process things. Also doing kind of what I learned later that psychologists call self-talk. Right, my early poetry was mostly self-talk, um, and so that helped me get through where I was. But my goal was to live in capital P poetry, like poetry the whole life. Poetry—that's what I do as a living. Poetry—that's what I put down on the doctor's office uh, questionnaire when I asked what your occupation is. I only started doing that five years ago, yeah. um, where it says occupation. I put poet, but it took a long time for me to do that. Um, and so poetry both served as a way to psychologically and emotionally survive and as a goal of, of where I wanted to be. Capital P, poetry, the last is the goal. <laughs> when you said that uh, you survived because of poetry, was that both reading and writing poetry? Yes. Yeah. By the time I wrote that first poem, I never stopped writing. Um, I won my high school poetry contest as a sophomore, and the contest was judged by a man from our hometown who had been a two-time poet laureate of Oklahoma. So <laughs> he, he, I went to church with him. Um, he wrote me this magnificent old-style civic poem for my high school graduation. Um, and uh, he judged that contest, so I won that. And I had notebook after notebook after notebook of scribbling. Um, I wrote most of my poetry in my head because I worked um, physical labor jobs, like um, uh, being um, an aide in a nursing home. That's actually extremely physical work. A lot of people don't realize how physical yeah. that is. Yeah. And so um, I got into a habit of being a binger poet. Mm -hmm. You know, there's bingers and plotters. Plotters sit down and write every day. Yeah. Bingers may not write something for a while, then they write 10 poems. I'm definitely a binger. But a lot of that had to do with practice uh, that I developed. So I could write in my head while I was doing physical work and when I had time and sit and write them down. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, one of the bad things about being older is I don't remember them so well anymore. So I've had to modify that practice by, I use my cell phone and I turn on my notes and because you can speak your notes into an Apple phone. Mm -hmm. And so I'll speak the poems into them until I have time to sit down and do more because I can't, um, can't keep them in mind like I used to. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. You mentioned that your mother knew them by heart and recited them, and it's mm -hmm. not been a skill I've ever had, so I can't mm -hmm. even blame being over 50 for that. <laughs> well, you know, that, but that we're not asked to do that, right? That was yeah. part of her education. People were expected to memorize. Um, and I had a sixth-grade teacher that we had to memorize X lines of poetry, um, a year every year and I had this teacher twice because he moved grades with us so um we did some of that but I I haven't either done as well as my mother about memorizing and I think that's a cultural change um certainly you know people talk about what the written word did to older cultures who were entirely oral and could remember all kinds of things for years and years and years epic poems sorry yeah. like you said with someone in the culture who could remember that because they're you couldn't write things down. And so the shift into writing things down actually made people's memories worse because they didn't exercise them in the same kind of way. 
So I think the lack of memorization, um, this is my excuse anyway, the lack of memorization <laughs> has partly to do with the way our culture is. I still can't read my work from, um, from memory. There are pieces, there are lines of poems that other people have written that the lines stick, but not always the whole poem. I get lost in the poem. So, no, me either. But my, my mother did that as part of, you know, it was an academic pursuit was to memorize these poems and declaim them. And now we have poetry out loud, you know, in the States. Do you know about yeah, that? Yeah. It's like a nationwide competition um, that starts in the public schools in every area. And these kids learn to uh, memorize and declaim their poems again. And also, I think performance poetry has brought some of that back. Because I've never seen a performance poet read anything. They all do mem from memory. So yeah. It's like theater, right? Yeah. <laughs> what I saw, I thought that um, in what I learned at the war, you've got a couple of poems that are written, or, uh, well, vertically? How do I describe that? The, the poems are written from the bottom to the top? <laughs> How do I describe so, this? Which, which one are you thinking about? Um, for the American Dead. Um, oh, yeah, I turned it sideways because I didn't want to chop. I had the opportunity to typeset my own book, which yes. is fabulous. Um, so if I, we say I that, that my... the, the, for the American Dead is written so that you have to open the book and turn it sideways yes. to yes. read it when the paper is landscape. Yeah, and I did that because, you know, uh, I didn't want to chop off the long lines. Yeah, that's what I was... Them thinking about was that that seems to indicate that you are a very visual writer. Line breaks were important, not necessarily in a rhythmic sense of how they were spoken, but visually how we receive them from the page. Yeah. Um, that's funny you should say that. I hadn't thought of it that way, except I just knew I didn't want them chalked up. Um, but for years, because I, I'm a really a self-taught poet, you know, I've had one poetry class in my life, hmm. one one semester poetry class in my life, and that was after my first uh, book was published. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned by reading, you know. And so for years, I just thought, you know, you would feel your way to a line break. And a lot of that feeling was how it looked on the page. I didn't realize that there were, like, hundreds of different choices you could make about breaking a line. <laughs> So, yes, I am very visually oriented. And um, to kind of skip down to um, another one of your usual questions, and we can mm -hmm. come back to the other, because this is where it's at. Because you asked me, um, do, when I write poetry, does it affect me physically? Which is yeah. skipping the first question, but they're reverses, so we can go back. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I feel poems coming. They're like a particular kind of fullness in my chest. Ooh. And I can't actually sit down and put it on the page until I feel like I'm so full that um, the cup is overflowing. Yeah. It's a, it's a particular, yeah, it feels like somebody's filling up a bottle of water inside my chest. And when it, it tips over, then it's time for me to sit down and write it. Oh. Um, and as they come into being, for me, they feel like shapes in my mind. Shapes that if someone asked me at that moment, I could trace with my hands. So um, wavy patterns like ocean waves, some poems feel like that. Um, some are 
inverted triangles, uh-huh. which is a really rhetorical thing, right? It's like yeah. the, the rhetorical triangle. Some of them are circles or um, other kinds of patterns like that. I could, when I'm starting to, when I'm ready to sit down and write a poem, I could, I could draw the shape in the air with my hands, which is very bizarre. Oh, no, that's <laughs> but there fascinating. It is. <laughs> Um, and actually, the the shape thing works for me too for longer pieces like essays. Um, even my dissertation, I knew what the shape of my dissertation was before I wrote it, and I didn't use an outline for all 300 pages. I wrote it from the shape that it gave me that was inside my body. <laughs> oh, that's... So a lot of my so yeah so poems actually physically physically affect me and um you know the other way that they affect me is the content right because some of the things i wrote about in my new book um are very difficult topics much more so than my last book i i feel like this book is like the other side of the story <laughs> um you know sometimes like then i get like sick at my stomach uh, yeah. when i'm writing about certain things or i feel like i've done something wrong mm-hmm. which i think i get that feeling when i'm telling something that um, like particularly the poems about sexual abuse. When I was writing those poems, I'd feel like I was doing something wrong because, yeah. of course, I was supposed to hide that. So that those things affect me as well. Um, but those kind of poems usually resolve once I finish the poem. They're like process feelings. You know, I'm sick at my stomach because this particular incident makes me sick at my stomach. Yeah. Well, writing the poem is of itself like rewriting the story of that thing and so those feelings go away um I, they don't usually bother me when i read the poems the difficult poems aloud except the ones that are that are just straight up elegies like for my brother or for my grandmother or for my mom sometimes those still choke me up because i still miss them yeah. but the poems about the past uh, for instance like about the my the stillbirth of my daughter the poem called melissa I can read that one without choking up most of the time, but not all the time. So, um, yeah. So, yes, I'm very physically oriented in word. Yes. When I was growing up, words were uh, oftentimes very dangerous, and um, they were used like weapons. And, and I think maybe that's part of it, is that I'm used to words uh, feeling like they're assaulting me physically. Um, and here again is another place that I've made decisions that poetry had to do with. I decided I didn't ever want to be in a world again where words were weapons, unless they were weapons I was wielding to protect myself. Oh, <laughs> so. oh that's a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> well, it's I, in one of those poems, you know, the one about um, the period. The period as in the sentence-ending punctuation. As I say, uh, and see, questions in my family were oftentimes very dangerous because there was no right answer, no matter how, what you said, it was wrong. Uh, questions like, what do you think, I'm stupid from a parent? <laughs> so you can't answer those kind of questions, right? No matter what you say, you're wrong. So in a, underneath that poem about punctuation, which on the surface looks very much like just kind of a cute poem about how I became a writer, mm-hmm. um, I liked periods because they could put a stop to things, literally and metaphorically. Yeah. So in 
Yeah, so you read the whole book, you can see that other thing underneath, but if you don't, I mean, like, I could read that poem in high school, right, without, um, without making the teacher nervous. Kids never get nervous about emotional poems. It's always the teacher. The teacher. Um, but I could read that poem on the one hand just anywhere, and you could read it straight up as if it were about how I became a writer. I fell in love with punctuation. Yeah. Um, or you can read the underneath of it, how I became a writer because it was necessary for my life. Well, I, you're talking about a poem called Number Two, Proper Punctuation. And, yep. And, yeah, I do remember there's a line, this is a prose poem, just so that people know, that you talk about. I, I'd like you to read the whole poem. Okay. There's a line in there that says, a world where chaos was contained between periods. Yes. I, I thought, knowing the sexual abuse and some of the other things, that whole, just that simple, that's not even the entire sentence, that's just a partial part, <laughs> um, that, as you said, you can read these poems on one level, but when you read the entire biography that's contained in here, or the story that's contained in here, I guess we should say, mm -hmm. you can go back and see that there's such richness and depth in every sentence. Thank um, you. So, yeah. I, so, since you brought up biography, I just want to say a comment about the series, before I read this poem, the, the short series of poems that this is the second one of. Yes. Um, when I taught freshman composition for the first time uh, as a PhD student, the first uh, essay that we were supposed to teach our students uh, was something called a literacy autobiography. And a literacy autobiography was a way for first-time college students to say what they knew and how they came to know it. So in some ways, it was like a process paper. That, uh, but the, and the best thing it was, was it gave students a way to claim the things they know, to not come into a classroom thinking they're too stupid or they don't know anything, but to say, yes, I know how to do this. Like some of my students wrote about field dressing a deer after going hunting, right? That's yes. that's something to know. Yes. <laughs> or um, fixing a car, or quilting, or making a cake, right? Or um, being the one in the family that everybody wants you to do their makeup. So these were things they knew how to do and things they were valued for. And so um, I wrote my very first literacy autobiography along with those students, which is an essay in my essay book that's been published elsewhere about learning the flora and fauna of where I grew up by walking around the farm with my grandpa. And, um, and I returned in this book, uh, what, 15 years later, to literacy autobiography because I think it's such a beautiful um, construct, how we know what we know. So here's number two, okay. proper punctuation. When I was in kindergarten, I fell in love with the period, that no-nonsense carbony dot of punctuational closure. Ironic for a girl. Later, I would moan, I hate my period. But of course, I didn't mean the sentence ending kind. My love affair with Monsieur P was inextricably related to my fling with the sentence. I could read and write when I arrived in Mrs. Dunlap's lemon-polished classroom, but had not yet enticed a pearly string of words to join together in holy meaning. Before the afternoon, I wrote, 
Sam ran fast on my Big Chief tablet. I was innocent of my need for the period, but it soon became an obsession. It seemed to me that Sir Period had power to put a full stop to overwhelming demands, to end entire families of caustic words, to insist no more and be taken seriously. I lingered with period, bunting my pencils and poking holes in paper while retracing each one to its deepest possible blackness. Every period gleamed with excess graphite. The fingers on my writing hand stained. The side of my palm slipped from slogging through lead slag heaps on the way to the next sentence. The next opportunity to create another singularity of imagined infinite density. Not a black hole, but a wormhole into another world where King Period reigned supreme. A world where chaos was contained between periods. Exclamation points were always gleeful, and question marks were nothing to fear. When I was older, I transferred my affections to the semicolon. I could not abandon the period entirely, but desired a more flexible, functional, punctuator, one that could divide and conjoin, end and begin simultaneously. Oh, see, I think that's one of my favorite poems. Um, because on the surface, as you said, it's about writing and, mm -hmm. and falling in love with that. But it's also so much about control. What you've talked about earlier about you said it was more painful to, to try and take control because you were constantly faced with what you don't have control of. And yes. every time you try to write a period or you, or you put a period at the end of something and say, this is the end, it's going to start fresh. And then something begins, it's out of your control again. And you try again to put a period. Um, but for me, that was ironically, I guess, one of the most painful poems in, in, in the collection. Um, <laughs> because I felt that that is why you became a writer, to gain control of the whole situation and to shape it and to contain it um, yes so, so very powerful <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot more uh, pain inside that poem than most people recognize yes mm. um and that poem started out being more of um the feeling of that poem coming was more about okay i'm gonna tell all the bad stuff in one poem and then i realized i i had to do it metaphorically it wouldn't have been a good poem. Um, it would have just been, you know, guts on a page. Mm. It wouldn't have been a good poem if I would have headed at all these things directly. And this poem also tries to set up a lot of the other pieces, like the next piece is about sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. right? But in a way, both of them rely heavily on, on metaphor to allow me to say these really difficult things without sounding as if that's all there was in my life ever. I don't know how exactly to say that. To make art of it, I had to use the metaphor. I had to use these metaphors because when I tried to write these poems originally as, as straight up narrative poems, um, I'm not sure that the readers uh, could have lingered there with those poems as straight-up narrative poems. So I'm not sure I could have either. <laughs> so, 
I was just having that discussion today with my publisher about where you, there are some writers who put autobiography on the page and others yeah. who use autobiography to put art on the page. When I read that poem, I bring my own life to it and fit yeah. it into the framework you've created out of your life and we find a common ground as poet and reader. I mm -hmm. enter that and you leave room for me. I get a sense of you and who you are and what you've been through from your book, but not a film, not a movie of a week of an after-school special of what you went through. I'm very happy to hear you say that because that was a conscious effort and decision when I started realizing this was a book happening. Um, I'm, my last book is almost entirely very, very pretty much straight up narrative poems. I mean, it's not that I don't, you know, use metaphors and imagery inside the poem, but they're much more storytelling poems. And I wanted to push myself a bit mm -hmm. uh, to try to move to some other kinds of composition. Um, I have never written anything in form before, and there are like six formal poems in this <laughs> book. Um, I did stay away from the really difficult form <laughs> forms, but I did that intentionally because I wanted to see, I kept hearing people say, oh, if you attempt a formal poem, it helps you do something else with your writing. It, it moves it a different place. And the, the structure helps you figure out how to frame the topic. And, and that was true. Uh, I think my favorite one was the hustle, though, um, Driving Lost Roads. What a fantastic form for a mostly narrative writer. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I really consciously wanted to not leave narrative poems behind. I don't think I'll ever leave them behind. Um, but to ask them to do a little more work on behalf of the reader and on behalf of the, the topic of the poem, right? So thank you. Mm. I'm glad. I'm glad it's working. <laughs> you never know. You know, you never know. Well, while you mentioned it, can you read that one as well? The Driving Lost Roads, Listening to Jedi Mind Tricks? Yeah, I love this poem. And it's we could let people know that this is one of the poems that's also in in landscape presentation yes, you have it to is. turn the book sideways right because it's a hustle right and they have such um enormously long lines and um i just like to say i don't always tell the story behind the poem because i think the poem should contain the story but um my friend uh, james who this is written for um he told me one day, he said, you know, if you're not listening to underground hip hop, you shouldn't be calling yourself a working class studies scholar. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, well, you know, I don't like, he said, I'm not talking about gangster rap. He said, here's a song I want you to listen to. Um, was it by Jedi Mind Tricks? And he said, because not only does it have a lot to say about working class urban life, he said, because I think it's some kind of poem form. I think it's a poem form, but I can't tell what it is. And sure enough, the last verse of this song called Chalice is a perfect puzzle. Oh. And it's underground hip hop, but it's a perfect puzzle with all of the things that are supposed to be in there. So um, we were driving around in the, my home county out in the, what we call the boondocks, and this poem happened. So this is called Driving Lost Roads, Listening to Jedi Mind Tricks, A Hustle. 
It begins with two quotes. The first one is from a Jedi Mind Trick song called Chalice. I'm once in a lifetime Haley's Comet out here. Gods and Earths and Moors, we Islamic out here. And the second one is from a Joy Harjo poem. Oklahoma will be the last song I'll ever sing. We all know there is only one road home. No other choice out here. You cannot be located, cannot be located, insists the haughty GPS voice. Out here, you cannot be. We see no other people for hours. All things man-made corrode into monuments of dread. Nothing is louder than prophesied silence. Souls recoil out here where anything might be. Just past a ghost town's melancholy edge, old possum sits staring at a red-spotted toad. Fresh branches top the arbor at Mekasuki Church. Rejoicing out here, folks soon will be. Keystone pipeline rips a deep, bleeding wound. The morning river is running red. No trespassing sign declares if you're not arriving to exploit. Out here you should not be. Me and sister singing and telling old lies, cursing the living and praising the dead. At brother's grave, the whiskey poured, then hoisted. Out here, lawman, let us be. Boarded at Main Street, Seminole Nation. At wind, clan, allotment, grave houses, whisper shadow. In cold rain under catalpas at Friedman's Lima Town, quoting Du Bois out here as we should be. Holdenville quick stop is flooded with tweakers, hoping meth is the cure for their sorrow. Indian casino promises fortune, but slots are nothing but noise. Out here, luck will never be. Tracing lines of resistance and sites of rebellion where farmers of the green corn bled. Ghosts chant revolution in Sasakwa streets. Their socialist voices out here will forever be. On this impossible day, a magic carpet ride with genie of the cross timbers and a dancing crow. A rebel gray sky is jealous of your eyes, of their vertigree joy out here where we cannot be. So once I thought about the fact that this Jedi mind trick song was a perfect huzzle and there was that kind of challenge there and I started thinking about writing a huzzle, it dawned on me it was the perfect form for a poem like this. Flash, 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 picture, picture, picture. They don't have to be tied together, but um, the poem as a whole says something, mm -hmm. right? Um, I guess probably the only other form that this poem would have been good in would be a haiboon. Is that how you say it, haiboon? The uh, mm -hmm. form where it's like haiku plus narrative poetry, mm -hmm. that form, H-A-I-B-U-N, um, for the same reasons, because there's a narrative part to this poem a very strong narrative part. We're on a road trip, um, but there's also the metaphorical and imagistic parts of this poem. And in some ways too, I think the huzzle resists the kind of simplistic narrative poem that I'm trying to move away from, not simplistic, but more straightforward narrative poem, because you're, you're, there's no, um, 
first we went here, secondly we went there, third we went there. No time words, nothing to tie these things together except the fact that they're all on the page together. Um, and once I thought, I'll just try to write it as a puzzle, it happened really fast. Wow. I just started thinking about the things we saw there and what they meant to me, and poof, it pretty much happened. I, I have a I silly... Huh? I have a silly question, because you were yeah. talking about how poems come to you as shapes, and, and the hustle, mm -hmm. I've, I've always read that described as pearls on a necklace. I'm just kind of curious if the little couplets are little pearls for you, if they're little round... <laughs> Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a great description, but for me it was, um, this one almost was as much motion as it was shape, but it's a certain kind of shape, so it's like, oh man, how can I explain that with no video? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that was interesting, you just made a gesture when you started to explain. I did. Yes. Oh, I know how I can explain it. Um, for people who've been fishing, mm -hmm. you throw the line out there, and then you pull it back in, you throw, yes. especially, um, fly fishing yeah which I was never very good at but I know the motion it's like throw and then pull yeah but a shorter pull back and a longer throw out you know what I mean so it's like that that's how that poem felt oh I and love so, that <laughs> so I think uh, I, I forgot to mention a while ago but sometimes I can dance my poems oh do you or can you <laughs> I can, and sometimes it's not really what people would call a dance, but just as I was trying to explain that to you, you'll notice it was my whole body movement. Right? Yes, you're going in and so out that's of the, the way frame. The <laughs> right, so it was way out there and then back, and way out there and then back. So yeah, so yes, it did feel like this as it was coming on, and then I think that's one reason why when I decided I was going to run for the challenge of writing a poem, this is the first poem and form I wrote for this whole book. Um... Once I decided I was going to go to the challenge of writing a hustle, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's perfect. It fit. So the two things fit even before I realized that they fit. That makes sense. Absolutely. I think that, that makes, I don't know, that, that fishing metaphor and that movement, to me, that makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> it must be a form of synesthesia, isn't it? Um, I wonder sometimes, um, because I certainly, uh, emotions I see as shapes, kind of like glowing shapes behind my eyes, so yeah. maybe it is. Yeah, emotions definitely have some shape and some color and some luminosity, yeah. so maybe so. Is I was always kind of jealous of people who had pure, uh, who had that synesthesia, because I always thought, dang, they're like, born with the equipment to be a poet yeah <laughs> or right? I, I don't know if you've seen that ted talk with elizabeth gilbert she she quotes w ruth stone talking about how a a poem sort of passes through her on the landscape and she has to grab it by the tail and reel it back in yeah and i think what i identified with that description was actually the grabbing and the pulling um mm -hmm. that for me, I think when I know the writing is good, I feel in my body the same way as I do when I've been running. And yeah. I think you're the only other poet I've ever heard <laughs> say that, or certainly the first, person, the first person ever to express that, because I've never heard it expressed, and it makes so much sense to me. I'm so glad we can talk about this out loud now. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like one of those things I kind of, I just feel comfortable with you. Now, even though we've never met in person, we had some very early formative talks on Wampo. Yes. And I'm like, 
oh, I can probably talk to Ren about this <laughs> because it sounds kind of woo woo. It, it does, and then for some reason, it doesn't feel woo woo to me. <laughs> it doesn't feel woo woo to me either. And I, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, yes, that mystic poet. Well, no, for me, it's not mystical, it's just the process. Right? Exactly, yeah. And it's hard to explain to where it doesn't sound like some kind of mystical <laughs> yeah but it, to me it seems the opposite of mystical it is the body moving and and yeah sort of instead of just the mouth and the tongue <laughs> yeah, exactly but maybe well, but you work in theater a lot right yes yeah. you can't divorce the body and space from the word in no. theater it's impossible and I mean, never... that's what makes theater so amazing <laughs> yes and i've always felt poetry is that way for me that yeah. it feels like movement when it really works. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, or that I guess a lot, uh, especially in your poems, even when I don't, we've talked about that, I, I don't directly identify with the culture, but there's a physicality about the writing that yes. places it in a landscape and it moves. It is a body moving through a landscape, an actual breathing presence if that makes uh, sense it does make sense and and thank you uh for that uh well and that one goes back to that essay i referenced a while ago my very first literacy autobiography was about walking around my grandparents farm with my grandpa and you know all the images of the of the landscape and nature and, you know, domesticated animals and grasses and him telling me the names of things. Yeah. Um, and, of course, naming things is such a huge part of poetry. That's what, you know, poetry names emotions, poetry names um, all kinds of things. And so for me, that moving through the landscape was the first way I'd learned things. I've, I've learned now that I've moved to a different part of the country how difficult it is to learn the names of all the things when you're not walking around with your grandpa. <laughs> you have to like, <laughs> because then it's embedded in story, right? Yeah. The names of things are embedded in story. Um, back to the oral tradition again. Um, and now I like have to t learn to tell myself these stories and I have a book I have to flip through to see what the name of that bird is. It's a totally different way of learning your place, which I think is, which is a very important thing to me. I want to know this place that I'm now in Albuquerque, um, as well as I know the home, my home area of Oklahoma, because I need to feel in place. In the essay I wrote about my grandfather and in the reality of our relationship, um, I found a great discussion of the things that he taught me in a poem by William Stafford called Allegiances. One of the lines in this poem says, time for all of us common ones to locate ourselves by the real things we live by. And that was something my grandpa taught me, and this is my favorite poem, and I'd like to read it for you now. Allegiances by William Stafford. It is time for all the heroes to go home if they have any, time for all of us common ones to locate ourselves by the real things we live by. Far to the north, or indeed in any direction, strange mountains and creatures have always lurked, elves, 
goblins, trolls, and spiders. We encounter them in dread and wonder. But once we have tasted far streams, touched the gold, found some limit beyond the waterfall, a season changes and we come back changed, but safe, quiet, grateful. Suppose an insane wind holds all the hills while strange beliefs whine at the traveler's ears. We ordinary human beings can cling to the earth and love where we are, dirty for common things. What you were saying about how you want to know Albuquerque as well as you knew Oklahoma. It sounds to me like you're working backwards in a way, which you sort of said, you have to look it up in a book and you find the word and then attach it to the experience instead of having the experience. And But how the, how the naming is not coming from story how I have to find the name to make the story. Right, that you're that creating you're a saying? sense, yeah, that where your grandfather gave you a sense of home and then told you the story of home, you now right. are creating a story of home to find this sense of home. Yes. Is that right? Yes. I need to make, I need to make story for this place. Uh, like when the Pinyon uh, Jay just flitted by here, it's a certain kind of blue jay. Um, that has evolved to be the perfect bird to live with the pinyon tree, where pinyon nuts come from, you know. Um, and they're this beautiful blue jay, and like most jays, they're very gregarious, and they're funny, and they like shiny things, uh, kind of like poets. And, <laughs> and so I want to be able to tell this place into story like I have just told about the pinyon jay, because once I can spell these places into story, spell, I, I stole that from Annie Finch. I love the way uh, she uses the idea of the spell. Yes. Right? I want to spell these things all into the story of my making place, making home here. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Gary uh, Snyder wrote a book a long time ago about making place where you are. It was called The Practice of the Wild. Mm. Um, it's a small, slim book. Um, but one of the points in the practice of the wild is that you can choose to belong to a place. So many people choose not to belong to a place, but to bring their previous place and ride over it. Like there are some houses up here where we live in Albuquerque that people came from you know, Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, and they have tornado cellars in them. There are no tornadoes on this side <laughs> of the mountain. Now, on the plains of New Mexico, yes, but not here. So here are people who are bringing another place and riding over this place with it. Um, we are fortunate to live in, in a house that echoes vernacular architecture. Um, and yet people bring houses that look like they belong in the Hamptons on the ocean to this place. So I think that's one of the things um, Snyder was, was saying. You can choose to make yourself a part of this environment to actually belong to this place. But it has to be a decision, um, and, you, and you have to do certain practices. That's why he called it the practice of the wild, right? Not the idea of the wild, yeah. but the practice of the wild, the practice of making yourself home in a place with the flora and fauna of that place. You have to make the decision to do that. 
and um, and you have to have certain actions. And so for me, some of those actions are when we first moved here, we pulled out every single non-native plant from our acre. Someone had put like fescue lawn in the desert. We took that out. <laughs> we now have buffalo grass on. Um, um, and there were some very invasive water sucking trees. So the first thing we did is we took out everything that wasn't native and now we're planting back native things. And to me, that process kind of explains how I use story and poem and metaphor to place myself, right? I came here a non-native, but I'm trying to work towards a sense, a small in native, I should say. Mm -hmm. I, I am trying to build my way toward a sense that I, I could become native in this landscape, in this place. Yeah. Otherwise, I feel lost. Well, do you find that now when you're writing, are, is buffalo grass entering part of your, your narrative? In some ways it was like when I was in Italy and learning Italian. I knew I had really kind of gotten a grasp on learning Italian, which I just learned from talking to people the night that I dreamed in Italian. So I began to dream in New Mexico and began to write in New Mexico. Um, my heart home of southeastern Oklahoma is always going to be there. I go back often. Um, but, you know, like dreaming in a foreign language for the first time, when you start dreaming in the landscape that you're trying to make home in, I think, um, I think that has some kind of meaning. Actually, the poem I chose to read for your question about is there one you would like for people to be inspired by. Yes. Um, it's very much a New Mexico poem. Oh, okay. It's also a love poem because I was thinking about um, the changes that I chose to make because of your earlier questions, you know, how does poetry and your life work together and what did you have to do to build the life you have now? Um, on Again and again and again, I made really bad choices in relationships for years until I was almost 40. And then I just quit having them for a while. And then I met the magnificent person that I'm with now. And we were married six months after we met. And people would say to me, you've only known him six months. I said, you know what? Some of those people I knew two years before they married him, and they still weren't any good. So <laughs> this one I'm pretty sure of. So this is a love poem for my husband. I was in my 40s, and he was in his 50s when we met. And it's called Arroyo Pino. Arroyo? Arroyo Pino. So Arroyo is a, like a drainage area. It's a mm -hmm. Spanish word. And Arroyo Pino means the arroyo where the pinion pines grow. Okay. So Arroyo Pino, which is the, pino in our, which is the arroyo in our backyard. Mm. Okay. Hiking up the arroyo. We stop often to gaze down at the yoke yellow ribbon of cottonwoods lacing the bosque. We have never been young together, so we go deliberately, yearnings tempered by years and experience. We pause near a choya cactus, yielding to its scarlet blossoms and besotted bees. You pull me toward you, kiss me deeply, the pinions blush. We return to the uphill trail, following scent of yarrow and yammering of jays. 
Thank you for listening to this choice podcast, this time with Janetta Calhoun Mish. Please check this choicepodcast.com or our Facebook page links for more information about Janetta and her work. This choice is a labor of love and curiosity. Please do what you can to support the efforts of poets and the small and independent publishers we rely on as readers and as writers. This is Ren Powell. I hope you'll join me again soon. Thank you.